0: health at every size, and body liberation.
1: Hey guys, welcome to episode 27 of Intuitive Bites. For the episode this week, I got to chat with Fiona Sutherland, and we're talking all about body composition manipulation in athletes. Um, so Fiona just has so much insight into you know the harm that can be done around expecting athletes to change their body in certain ways um, and how, you know, this kind of pressure can affect athletes, different athletes, different ways. Um, and really just, she really um, puts a, a case out there for uh, educating coaches and um, people that are influencing athletes, you know, about the harm of body composition, manipulation, and all of that. So, um, it's a really, really interesting episode and I'm excited to share it with you, especially if you're somebody who is an athlete yourself, or, um, you know, works with athletes or something like that. I think that this is super, super important episode. Um, so sit tight and let's go ahead and listen to my conversation with Fiona. All
0: right, Fiona, we are good to go. So, um, I would love to start by just having you introduce yourself a little bit um, and what you do to my audience.
2: Sure, Kirsten. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today and to be chatting a bit about things that, you know, I know both of us are really passionate about. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of my history, I have been a dietitian now for almost 20 years, which is a little bit frightening every time <laughs> I say that. I think I've been saying 15 years for most <laughs> of the past five years. So all of a sudden I was like, oh, maybe I need to change that just a little to be transparent. Um, Look, in my early years of dietetics, I had no idea what I wanted to do and specialise in, and over time I guess I stumbled across lots of different Ways of working with people. Um, I started off in, working in clinical practice in the UK. Um, that wasn't for me. Just kind of long story short. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I've always been very interested in in sports and performance nutrition. Um, I was an athlete myself, mm-hmm. um, and so have had a special kind of interest in that. And then purely by chance, I got a job in eating disorders in an outpatient um, in an outpatient program, and that really, really kind of supercharged my understanding about the human experience and, and particularly the struggles that the people, um, in all bodies, in all ways of showing up in the world can really, um, you know, really have. Um, so that, that, you know, has really intersected with my sports nutrition work over, over mm-hmm. years. Um, and I've now kind of really come to understand that, you know, um, that, you know, um, a, pressures in this sporting environment certainly um, can have a significant influence not only on sporting performance but also on psychological and physical health um, and and there are certainly ways in which dietitians and coaches and other support people can 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 help athletes to be able to not only perform well but also have a, you know a life where they're not constantly you know feeling under pressure or um, or stressed about their bodies and and achieving certain body shape and sizes and weights and um, you know I know it's just a really it's actually really tricky it's a really tricky intersection to work in but it's something I feel really passionate about because I I do feel like we could do better I feel Mm -hmm. like we could you know um, take a bit of a stronger stance on certain things and maybe you know become a lot more curious about other things Mm -hmm. Um, so a, a couple of years ago which has been quite formative in my learning. I also became a yoga teacher. Mm. Um, I've been practicing. I have had my own mindfulness and meditation practice for quite a number of years. um, And I have found it to be, uh, honestly really instrumental in my own work with both individuals and groups and communities um, and, and certainly my work with other dietitians as well, which is a big part of my work these days. My my private practice has, has dwindled quite a bit in terms of, you know, I'm not taking on any new clients at the moment and I'm really shifting gears in my, um, in my education and training and, and supervision of other dietitians, which is really, to be honest, that's where my heart is because, you know, um, Um, you know supporting my own my own colleagues to to become more confident in their ability to do really really amazing work in this space just knowing that none of us are perfect none of us have got it all licked Um, but that this work can be it can be really tough and that's something that I'm really passionate about supporting my colleagues with and and talking more about things that can make a difference and you know those tricky, sticky, icky, awful tough conversations that we really don't want to have but we've got to have Um, so I'm sure that's what you and I are going to be really digging into today Kirsten so I really appreciate these things. Yeah and I know
0: that I for one certainly appreciate your guidance so I'm so excited that you're you're kind of going in that direction and, and just helping, you know, people like myself, um, you know, dig more into this work and and get into this space. Um, I think that, you know, the topic that I'd I'd love to chat with you about, um, is like this idea of, um, you know, where, uh, some of this like struggle comes up in with athletes with body composition, body composition, manipulation in different sports and, and how that can be really, really like a huge struggle for people. Um, For myself personally, like I was very interested in going into like sports nutrition when I originally became a dietitian um, because I grew up like playing tennis um, competitively. So I always kind of tie that into my story as like that was part of the reason that I I came into this field, but also tied up all in that was, you know, my own struggle with disordered eating and all of that. So this particular topic is definitely very close to home for me, Um, but I'd love for you to just like I guess introduce a little bit, um, just even what this um, this issue is, and really like how big of an issue is this um, this thing with body composition manipulation with athletes. Like, is it affecting a lot of people? And like, are what certain sports is it like really affecting?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question and I'll do my best to try mm-hmm. to cover as much as I can. Um, okay, so the first thing that's really important to understand, whether you are an athlete yourself or whether you're a coach or a, or a dietitian or a support person or you know, who, whoever you are, mm-hmm. is that the effect of um, measuring body composition or, you know, nutrition modification for the purposes of body composition manipulation and things like that are uh, the uh, the impact. So what I mean by that, just to get really specific, is that you could line up 10 people, um, 10 athletes in a team, and you could be, they could have similar goals, similar body composition goals. And um, from a sports nutrition perspective perspective to uh to move towards a certain body composition goal is going to inevitably mean that each athlete is going to be capable of different things for a start and their requirements are going to be really different so taking an individualistic approach Mm -hmm. to body composition manipulation is going to be really different. Now I want to take that one step further because that's kind of taking nutrition science perspective Mm -hmm. Um, because when we take science but we take the human out of it we miss the impact which is looping back to what I said first. Mm -hmm. We need to pay attention to impact because all 10 of the athletes standing in front of us all also have different risks and vulnerabilities when it comes to um, psychological and emotional health. So um, I'm going to use some loose numbers here um, and, and certainly none of this is kind of gold standard research-based evidence-based you know um I, i'm not looking at one particular piece of literature when i'm saying this because i think it varies so much but i'm going to give you just a broad example okay so of these 10 athletes standing in front of us um adopting uh, certain um changes to to dietary intake and to exercise and to body composition measuring let's just say for three out of the 10 athletes they are able to take on these modifications with absolutely no change to psychological and emotional health at all they're actually able to do it quite easily able to take these modifications on and it just becomes part of life it's kind of easy really it doesn't have any particular impact at all and they're feeling like really motivated and confident and feeling like this is a really good thing and it's part of being an athlete, then you could take um, say another three of these athletes and they might have some risk factors. Um, now some of these risk factors might be that their um, genetic and biological body composition is not necessarily suited to being able to take on these particular nutrition and exercise modifications. And also they may have some, some risks around um, psychological and, um, and emotional health, for example, maybe strong um, perfectionistic tendencies. They might have strong tendencies towards dichotomous or binary thinking, which means kind of all or nothing kind of mm-hmm. thinking, which it does tie into a little bit of perfectionism, but uh, kind of comes up in the world a little bit differently to that. They may have a biological disposition towards some mental health struggles, so maybe depression, anxiety, maybe OCD, um, all kinds of different ways in which um, uh, emotional or mental health difficulties can, can arise in the world. And they may um, and they may have some some struggles to be able to adopt or put into put into place the modifications um and the body composition requirements which have been set out for them and may have some consequences in other words they may start a little bit overthinking things but not to the point where it becomes like really difficult or it becomes um, you know really super disordered or it completely overtakes their lives Mm -hmm. but they may or may not be able to achieve what's been set out to them and it may come with some consequences so that might be another three Mm -hmm. and then maybe another three i know we're talking about nine here rather than ten but let's just keep it simple yeah so then so then we're talking about another third of athletes which um again um let's take that second group i talked about and let's up the ante a little so these athletes may have significant kind of biological or um uh, risk um risk factors inherent in their uh, in their genetics, which may put them at quite significant risk for heading down the path of an eating disorder. Now, these three athletes may also have previously had an eating disorder or may previously have disor- uh, have dabbled in disordered eating or dieting behaviours. They may have been trying to manipulate their body composition for quite a length of time, and for them, the, their vulnerabilities are really quite high. Um, these athletes may or may not Possess the characteristics um, in terms of body composition, which may actually allow them to even achieve the body composition which has been set for them, maybe by team managers or coaches. Um, you know, X. Ex- X, um mill of, um, of of skin of, of body fat according to skin folds maybe over seven sites or nine sites of uh, of, of skin fold measuring or a certain amount of um, body fat according to maybe um, you know bod pod or different different ways of measuring um, body composition so it may not Uh, you know um maybe one of these athletes of these nine athletes that we're now talking about maybe they have um polycystic ovarian syndrome and maybe it's just really really hard for them to change their body composition because of a condition that they have which makes it's an endocrine based condition which makes things really really difficult for them um so then you've got these three athletes which actually have strong vulnerability and risk towards much more seriously um, engaging in these um, body composition kind of manipulation behaviors through through diet and exercise, which actually are really, really risky for a number of reasons. So I know I made that nice and even, and it never turns out even, of course. Mm-hmm. But what we need to identify is that is that there are going to be some athletes for whom we can um, make recommendations, which will have, you know, you know, very little impact, and in fact, their performance could really improve. And it's important that we that we say yes, there are those athletes, mm-hmm. but then unfortunately, what happens is we tend to. Um, we tend to think that more athletes are like that that is actually true more athletes i find to be honest with you kirsten sit in the middle group where they have some vulnerability and risk that may or may not ever turn into anything like a clinical eating disorder Mm -hmm. but that we really 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 need to take into account that these athletes um, we need to be taking really good care of them. Um, and then, of course, the third group of athletes that I talked about, you know, um, they, these are the athletes that, um, you know, we don't really like to talk about because it becomes very tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, especially up the clinical eating disorder end. And we're not just talking about um, people who obviously, according to their body type, you know, may be very low weight. We're talking about athletes in anybody type mm-hmm. across the weight spectrum, across the performance spectrum, from um, you know from amateur right through to sub-elite to elite to professional um, that are not obvious at all. Most of the athletes I work with are not thin. Um, yeah. They are, you know, to their naked eye, they're kind of, um, you know, quote unquote, kind of average, higher weight or even very high weight. They're incredible athletes, mm-hmm. um, but who really struggle with these messages around, um, you know, changing body composition in order to um, in order to improve performance. So um, that was a really long winded answer for you, but I mm-hmm. think we need it's to so pay attention to 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 all the athletes that you know come into our practice yeah and i think it's so interesting just
0: like the way you laid that out um you know it makes it really clear that like that uh you know our culture kind of makes it it seem as though if you try hard enough anyone can achieve this body composition or whatever or like these changes in their body and and obviously you know we know that is not true. Um, but even that I think is is a huge statement to say, like, actually, like, um, there's a human underneath there. And there's a lot of impact that can come from trying to achieve this thing that actually might not be possible for that person at all,
2: you know? that is exactly right <laughs> and what you spoke about really beautifully there is it's the striving and the driving towards this some in some cases it's a fairly nebulous kind of goal mm. that is not based in evidence there's no, there's nothing about these particular numbers that have that are strongly rooted in research or literature or even real life which tells us this this particular body composition will result in best performance that's just not the way humans work and um, um, what I'm noticing is that in some sports or in some teams, they're doing it much better than others. In um, And sometimes it depends on the type of sport, like, you know, when they're sports with different positions, for example, which, you know, there, there might be an op, more an optimal um, body size or shape, which um, tends to kind of work better in, in certain positions uh, or in more individualistic sports, like, for example, tennis. I mean, you, you had a good example yeah. there or, or, or gymnastics that, you know, we need to really take into account that, um, you know, the, the the diversity within those sports is probably a lot more than we take, than, than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you lined up, you know, athletes that, you know, I'll take gymnastics for an example, that you know at the very very top level they're all very little um Mm -hmm. even the even the um the the bodies that are a lot bigger um you know objectively bigger than some of the 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 smallest bodies if you take a look at those athletes they're all very small so Mm -hmm. the uh, you know kind of the quote-unquote diversity amongst sports um you know we we need to really take a good look at what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about diversity? Because, um, you know, uh, much of the time we're not really allowing for the scope of diversity that could be there. Um, Mm. And we're kind of trying to jam people into boxes. Um, And a lot of that is influence from within the sport um, from, um, you know, pressures as scholarship pressures, for example, um, to to either get or maintain a scholarship um, to, 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 um, to, to, maintain a place on a team or to get a place on a team it's just really tricky I feel so I feel so deeply for athlete for athletes and the pressures that they're under I really do
0: yeah you know I'm curious like your viewpoint on like which sports this is like the biggest problem for or if there if there are sports that it's you know more of an issue
2: Yeah, good question. I would say, in all honesty, that if we kind of work backwards and ask the question, for which sports is this not an issue? Mm. Um, And (laughs) and um, and the truth is, there is no sports for whom within which this is not an issue. As far as I'm aware, if there are sports out there for whom, um, you know, there are no risks and vulnerabilities and no athletes really, really struggling in their relationship with food and eating and their bodies and exercise and, you know, all these things that can really stand in their way of Mm -hmm. optimal performance and quality of life, then I'm kind of yet to hear about it. Uh Um, So, you know, kind of thinking from that perspective, Mm -hmm. it would be unwise for uh, for health professionals to yeah. be thinking that in their sports, that this is not an issue. Yeah. Let's assume it is an issue and work back from there. Um, I like yeah. Well, I, I think what that does is also holds us accountable, accountable too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of sports dietitians that I have spoken to or that I've seen, you know, write online or in media say, Oh, I don't work with um, athletes with eating disorders.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm like, yeah, you'd, You definitely do. It's just that you don't know about it. Um, So the more we can kind of upskill in our insight and understanding as to how disordered eating and eating disorder, you know, um, finds its way into the sports that we work in, you know, we're we're in a much much better position to then equip ourselves to feel really confident having these conversations. Um, But if you were to uh, up the pressure and say, "Okay, come on, let's get really specific," Um, what I would say is that it's not the obvious ones. There is a lot of research, literature and attention being paid on, uh, in sports that we call, um, a, you know, um, quote unquote aesthetic sports, things like gymnastics, diving, synchronized swimming, um, a ballet sports that are kind of judged or critiqued on the, uh, on the shape, um, uh, shape of the, the, um, the artist or the athlete themselves. Now, interestingly, yes, um, competing or um, being an artist in those sports, it certainly does come with a certain style of pressure, I would say. Um, and the literature definitely does support that. You know, the incidence of um, of di- disordered eating attitudes and, and disordered exercise behaviours in those particular sports is is higher than in the general population. Mm. Now, as somebody who has been heavily involved in those particular sports, as well as being highly involved in like say elite men's team-based sports, for example, um, I would say that we are kidding ourselves if we think that um, these behaviors and attitudes don't don't arise in every single sport but maybe particularly in those sports where it is where where maybe um excessive training is uh, normalized um so or, or where particular body types are really idealized so for example um running uh triathlon rowing um even maybe tennis, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are lots and lots of sports where I think that people kind of slip under the radar because we tend to ascribe the most risk and vulnerability to sports which are more maybe female oriented or adolescent oriented or thinness oriented um Mm. and i think what that does is it kind of leads us up the garden path (laughs) and Mm. and we don't we don't kind of put our attention where it needs to be and that is across all sports all genders all bodies all levels um and we're kind of yeah putting our attention in places that it doesn't need to be maybe Mm. oh i don't know Mm. I think attention still needs to be on those sports. Um, But then our our funding and our, for example, dietetic hours and um, and psychology and welfare hours don't get spread across the sports where it really needs to be. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I feel like this begs the question, like, so if there's a coach or somebody, you know, listening, that's like, oh, wow, like I'm working with athletes, like how can I, uh, make a better impact like what would be your message to that to that coach right now you know that that they could
2: help yeah that's such a great question okay I work a lot with coaches um, and it's well known um, both. Both in the literature and research, and also any athlete and coach will tell you that the role of the coach is absolutely instrumental in setting the scene and setting the attitudes of the of the athletes and other coaches and support people around within a particular sport. Um, and certainly, the culture of a particular sport can be very much set up by the coaches of that particular time. So whether they're more um, authoritative or more um, permissive, or you know what kind of leadership style they have, and certainly what kind of um, attitudes um, and beliefs that they are coming to the sport with. So with that in mind, um, what I would say to coaches, like if there was a coach Mm -hmm. sitting in front of me, let's just pretend we're having a little conversation with a coach Mm -hmm. or, you know, I I do spend some time with coaches. The message that I say that I try to send to them is your words matter. Mm -hmm. Your role modeling matters. Your leadership matters. Um, Your athletes and and the other coaches and the support staff that hang around with you and are employed alongside of you, they are listening and watching for your words, Mm -hmm. Um, your words and your actions. What I often will say to coaches is, you know, um, spend some time if possible, um, you know, really deeply considering your own attitudes and beliefs about bodies, Mm -hmm. about eating, about body composition, measuring and manipulation and just have a little think about you know um, what aspect of that are you bringing maybe from your own athlete history um, and what aspect of that might be helpful to kind of leave behind knowing what we know now about the way that language and um, behaviors influence influence athletes you know we didn't know um even 20 30 years ago maybe when current day coaches were athletes themselves we didn't know that um you know that that measuring body composition so regularly or doing this you know acute body composition um, manipulation could possibly be harmful we just didn't know Mm -hmm. and now that we do know i often say to coaches when we know better we actually need to do better. And there is a responsibility that lies within your role that doesn't hold you responsible. If, one or more of your athletes gets themselves into a pickle um, you know, with food and eating and exercise, it is not your responsibility, is not your fault. And alongside that, it is your responsibility to send messages to all your athletes, which encourages them to um, see their quote unquote best, not within a particular body shape, size, or composition, but within what they are capable of to really encourage their potential. Mm. Um, without triggering their risk. Um. So, you know, and seeing each of your athletes as individual humans that come with them, a particular set of um, circumstances, a particular unique set of potential um, and, and also additionally risks and vulnerabilities, which really need to be um, taken care of. So I think, you know, some coaches are doing an incredible job. You know, I really tip my hat to the coaches that are doing such a great job at seeing their athletes first and foremost as humans. Um, And then also, you know, there's the invitation there for coaches to really step up up into that space where um, they take their role really seriously Um, not that they don't of course um, but they take their role seriously particularly in the way that they speak about and promote the acquisition or the driving towards certain bodies or body types or body composition or certain ways of eating even um, as being you know um more important or being more valuable or more worthy um and i think there's lots of different ways that coaches can do that but first and foremost take a look at your own backyard (laughs) first of all oh my goodness that can be so deeply uncomfortable and i really get that Uh um and then second of all you know set up your leadership messaging so that athletes are really clear that um you are caring for them each individually as athletes
0: Oh, what a great message. I love that. That that was, that was so helpful. I'm curious, like, do you have resources for coaches, like training materials or like, what do you have, um, yeah, available to help people in this realm?
2: So, um, what I, what I try and do is in my work is I, I try to train my colleagues. So people like you, Kirsten, for example, Mm -hmm. that, my colleagues feel equipped to talk to the coaches mm-hmm. with whom they have contact with about this particular thing. I'm, I am by no means the only person who can talk to this. Mm-hmm. There are tons and tons and tons of people all over the world who can talk to this topic really, really well. So what I've got set up is um, an online course, which is called eating disorder, eating disorders in sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the kind of ideal audience for that is, is dietitians all dietitians, mm-hmm. not just sports dietitians. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, Kirsten, I find it fascinating. I've got coaches in that course. Mm-hmm. I've got psychologists in that course, counsellors, therapists, um, um, exercise physiologists. I've got a physiotherapist in the course. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. And they have given me some really interesting feedback. They're like, wow, you! I can tell that you've really tailored it for dietitians. Like there's a lot of kind of nutrition um you know, nutrition and dietetic content in there, but they're like, wow, this is actually, this messaging is important for everybody. So, um, so, so my particular role is to train, I guess, dietitians to then get the message out there. So if anybody's interested in that course, then, um, then you can find that on the themindfuldietitian.com.au and there's lots of different um, little mini courses, freebies, mm. um, webinars, longer courses. So this is a longer course of mine. Um, and then And, um, and hopefully, you know, if you're interested, you'll be able to find something suitable in there because I really deeply believe that, um, there are so many, um, health professionals out there that if they can equip themselves with this messaging and then we can, we can all together help to send the message out there. So it's not kind of me talking to coaches. It's kind of me talking to other people who can then talk to coaches, if that makes sense.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. That's so great. And it's so good to hear too, that like there are so such there's diversity in your course and people that are interested in that. So that's really cool. Um, I will link below too, so people can find everything on your website and you know, all your different resources that you've got.
2: Sure. Thank you. I really appreciate that Kirsten. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Fiona. This was great. You're
2: welcome. Have a great day.
1: You too. All right, guys, that is all for this week's episode. I am going to link below to where you can find Fiona online um, and where you can access all of her resources that she has for you guys. Um, So definitely check that out. Um, Also, if you have a moment to leave a rating or review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, It definitely makes a big difference in, you know, getting this podcast out to more people who need to hear this message. Um, And finally, I wanted to announce to you here on the podcast that I am hosting an intuitive eating workshop in New York City on March 23rd, which is a Saturday. Um, It's a two-hour workshop from 1 to 3 p.m. The meeting room is going to be very close to Grand Central Station. So um, if you're traveling in for it or anything like that, it'll be very easy to get there. Um, Basically, it's going to be, you know, the basics of intuitive eating and talking about you know practical application and you know how you can incorporate some of these concepts into your own life Um, and it's going to be a lot of reflecting and and discussing with others who are learning about this as well so it's going to be a really good time if you're interested in coming um, reach out and let me know and I'll get you registered and everything Um, I do have early bird prices so if you get signed up before february twenty third um, it's only sixty nine dollars um, and then it's going to slowly increase from there so reach out to me if you're interested and we will get you registered all right guys that's all for I ha- all I have for you right now, but I hope you have a great week and I will talk to you all soon.